The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World podcast. Today is a special episode written for History of the World podcast Illuminati member Pre Carpenter. This is the history of Crete. The formation of the Mediterranean Sea over millions of years has fascinated scientists who look for geological links to paint a picture of the sequence of events. In fact, it seems that the Mediterranean Sea was once part of a major waterway called the Tethys Sea, which separated the landmass of Eurasia from the joint landmass of Africa and Arabia. It would be the clash of these two land masses which would separate the Arabian Sea from the Mediterranean Sea. A temporary closure of the Strait of Gibraltar would cause the Mediterranean Sea to dry out before a hypothesised event called the Zanclean Flood saw the Strait of Gibraltar recreated by a breach of Atlantic water, causing a highly dramatic flooding of the land between Europe and Africa, which left promontories of land poking out of the water, such as the island of Crete. Previous to this deluge, which theoretically happened just over 5 million years ago, Crete would have been part of a landmass which made up the tectonic plate called the Aegean Sea Plate. The Aegean Sea Plate contains many of the Cycladic Islands, but also the Greek land called the Peloponnese. Much of these lands would have once been part of the Tethys Sea Bed, but the movement of Africa towards Europe around 20 million years ago is likely to have pushed the seabed upwards and beyond the surface of the water, giving birth to the dry lands of the island of Crete. Crete is the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea after Sicily, Sardinia, Cyprus and Corsica. It is the largest of the islands that belong to Greece and with over 600,000 residents, very easily the most populated. It marks the southern border of the Aegean Sea which separates mainland Greece from mainland Turkey. Travelling south beyond Crete from the Aegean Sea takes you into the open waters of the Mediterranean Sea. During the early 21st century, a Polish geologist called Gerard Gielinski studied some footprints which have been named the Trachylos footprints discovered in western Crete 
which appeared to have hominin characteristics and dated to around 5.7 million years ago. If these were definitively hominin, then this may suggest that human ancestors walked the lands of Crete long before humans evolved, around 3 million years later. This would have been before the hypothesised Zanclean flood, so it is plausible if we wanted to assume that these human ancestors probably couldn't swim. I hasten to add that all of these events are not fully accepted by the scientific community. Before the 21st century, there was no knowledge of human occupation of Crete before the Neolithic Revolution around 10,000 years ago. A site near Placias in the south of Crete, known to date back to the Mesolithic period, which is contemporary with the Neolithic Revolution, also revealed the presence of Acheulean hand axes that date to before 100,000 years ago. This discovery turned the understanding of human activity in the Mediterranean Sea on its head, with occupation of Mediterranean islands by humans before the Neolithic Revolution lacking evidence. Of course, the biggest mystery about this discovery are the facts that we do not necessarily expect to see Homo sapiens anywhere outside Africa before 100,000 years ago, so we have to assume that Homo sapiens had the ability to travel across seas from very early in their global migration. The other mystery is exactly how they managed to do this when we have no evidence of human seafaring during this period other than the fact that they must have had the ability to, to even be on Crete during this time. Some historians suggest that they were simple raft builders. Evidently, we can be much more confident of a population of Crete both during and after the Neolithic Revolution and we look at both archaeological and migrational evidence to support this claim. Arrowheads from the transitional Mesolithic period around 10,000 years ago coupled with the fact that agricultural societies appear to have populated many Mediterranean islands from the direction of the Levant gives us a clearer picture of prehistoric activity. These first agricultural societies would have proliferated on Crete, rapidly working through the limited plant and animal resources, diminishing the landscape and exterminating many of Crete's unique animal species through deforestation and hunting. These agriculturalists were thought to be ancestral to the Minoans, who were not only the first labelled society of Crete, but also the first labelled society of Europe. The most famous of all of the Minoan population centres is at the palace site of Knossos in the north of the island. Excavations at Knossos reveal evidence of a much earlier settlement than the one recognised by visitors today. The palace complex is attributed to the period of occupation after 2000 BCE, but settlement of the area could date over 5,000 years earlier. Minoan culture may have emerged as a result of heightened trade activity by the advancing societies of the Mediterranean, and it seems particularly in and around the Cycladic islands to the north of Crete, where trade appears to have been healthy among maritime traders. Minoans
Not only were the Cretans developing as an agricultural island society, but they would have incorporated ideas of their visitors. Not only were there significant trade relationships with the Cycladic societies to their north, but also with the powerful new Egyptian nations that gave rise to the pyramid builders of the Old Kingdom period of Egyptian history. These Egyptians would have more likely been visited by Cretan seafarers than actually travel the open seas to Crete themselves. We can feel sure that the Minoans and the Egyptians were very well aware of each other through Mediterranean trade networks, and this connection undoubtedly influenced Minoan knowledge and understanding and advanced their agricultural and architectural skills, as well as creating a necessity to write well in order to document transactions and laws of trade and ownership. Here we can recognise the Minoan development of the Linear A writing system and a clear evidence of a new wealth which was created by thriving trade and displayed by many artefacts originating from far and wide and the creation of lavish palace sites such as the one at Knossos. The Minoan period is seen as a sudden crescendo of wealthy culture on the island of Crete. Preserved frescoes are artistic windows into the lifestyles of the Minoans, demonstrating ceremonial aspects that point towards a form of paganism. The frescoes demonstrate that fashion was a thing, with stylish clothing and jewellery depicted. So the demonstration of wealth in this period even filters down to an individual level. People in Minoan society wanted to be and celebrated being wealthy. The Minoan culture of Crete was highly influential and due to its growing power it was able to extend its influence beyond the shores of Crete, effectively controlling settlements across the water such as Miletus, which was heavily influenced by Cretan migration. Minoan culture was so advanced for its time that no one away from Egypt and the Near East could compete with its wealth and due to its island base, the Minoans didn't have to have major defences. A theory about the severe volcanic eruption of Thera to Crete's north is believed to have led to a tsunami which devastated the coastal settlements and fleet of the Minoans leaving Crete more vulnerable than ever to foreign invaders. The main threat to the Minoans was that of the largest culture on the mainland Balkan Peninsula in the modern lands of Greece, and they were the Mycenaeans, who were much more militarily active due to the fact that they could be attacked from surrounding lands and didn't have the advantage of a defensible island. However, it does seem that the Mycenaeans were able to bring the Minoans under their influence and take control of the palace site at Knossos. Mycenaean influence over the Minoans continued until the event known as the Late Bronze Age Collapse, where a mysterious but widespread collapse of all the major nations of the Eastern Mediterranean brought an end to Mycenaean culture, as the Mycenaeans either fled the Balkan Peninsula and the Aegean Sea, or were just plunged into poverty and had to revert to the very basic nomadic tribal lifestyles dispersing across the lands. Mycenaeans were possibly ancestral to the Achaeans. Ancient Greece 
Crete would remain populated, but there is little in the way of historical records for details. We know that the wealthy age of the Minoans was now gone. The population are referred to as the Etiocretans and had a writing script that may have evolved from the Linear A writing script of the Minoans. The Etiocretans are probably the descendants of the once great Minoans. During this time, wealth and activity were beginning to emerge again on the Balkan Peninsula, the dawning of the ancient Greeks. The nearest continental landmass to Crete is the Peloponnese, which was home of the Spartans, who were gaining power during the first half of the first millennium BCE. The Spartans identified themselves as being ethnically Dorian, and it seems that there was a Dorian migration to Crete. With the evidence to hand, a Dorian migration is a convenient way to describe the influx of populations into Greek lands because not much is understood about this period. With the growing number of the poles of the Balkan mainland such as the Athenians and the Spartans, Crete was comparatively unimportant and able to exist without becoming too embroiled in the politics of ancient Greece. As such, Crete had the luxury of being able to distance itself from ancient Greek politics and would look to avoid being involved in the defence of the Balkans from the Persians and the subsequent Peloponnesian War between Sparta and Athens. The Cretan societies were not a united political entity though. Individual cities on Crete governed themselves and their individual fortunes and this could sometimes lead to tensions as the cities jostled for supremacy over one another. We know that there were tensions between Knossos, who attempted to extend its influence over the island, and the settlements who opposed these attempts, such as Lictus, but the Cretan cities would invite societies from the wider Greek world to support its battles with each other. Essentially, Crete had no monarch during this period, it was much more of an oligarchic island with major families controlling fortunes and contention between those families periodically. The economy of the island was always quite healthy despite these differences. Young Cretan males were educated with a view to providing military service and there have been comparisons made to the Spartan model of a very militarily minded society. We have to remember that Sparta was the nearest major Greek city-state to the island of Crete during the ancient Greek period, so it might come as no surprise that Spartan ideas were filtering into Cretan ways of life. After the rise of Alexander the Great and the dawning of the Hellenistic period of Eastern Mediterranean history, Crete remained an island of rival city-states. To the east of Crete was the island of Rhodes, whose economy and stature in the Hellenistic world was growing thanks to a strong relationship with Ptolemaic Egypt, and this was a growing concern for the Macedonians. The Macedonian king Philip V would look to Crete for influence and support against the Rhodians, but each individual Cretan city would have their own agendas and would either stand for Macedonia or roads, splitting the island and resulting in the Cretan War. Philip had a much bigger issue emerging from the West now though, with the rise of the Roman Republic. 
The Romans. Cretan identity and independence remained at the heart of the population throughout its history, despite the fact that its independence was somewhat of a fallacy, with Crete falling under the control of various nations from the point of its conquest by the Romans in the 1st century BCE onwards. Often, ancient texts described the Cretans as a people's not necessarily to be trusted and even quite self-serving but we really shouldn't expect anything less from any nation of people during this period in history anyway. The one thing that conquest did for the Cretans was to centralise their authority, despite the authority being foreign. This meant that the economy of the island would be preserved, rather than wasted on warfare between the rival cities on the island, as had been the case during the ancient Greek period. Crete had a thriving fishing economy and was of huge strategical importance at the heart of the eastern Mediterranean Sea. After the Romans conquered the Macedonians during the 2nd century BCE, a doorway to the riches of the east was opened up, but these riches were not easy to come by with considerable levels of piracy that would disrupt transport of supplies such as grain to the Roman Republic the Cretans had little interest in supporting the Romans and preferred to deal with the pirates and even negotiating with the Roman enemy, Mithridates VI of Pontus. The Romans felt that the conquest of Crete was a necessity by this point and so they directed some energy towards the project. The Cretans proudly defeated the Roman naval commander Mark Antony father of the tragic Mark Antony who married Queen Cleopatra of Ptolemaic Egypt. After the Roman defeat, a treaty was agreed, but it would be short-lived. After the Romans had successfully dealt with a slave war led by the gladiator called Spartacus, they resumed their attack of Crete, successfully defeating it and occupying the island. A capital city was established at Gortin, in the south of the island and this would be the centre of the province of Crete and Cyrenaica which were the North African coastal lands of those roughly equivalent to the modern country of Libya. Private land ownership was encouraged by the Romans and this would bring a period of peace and stability to the island where the primary function reverted somewhat to trade networking. The political connection with North Africa meant that the trans-Mediterranean maritime trade routes would have been governed from Gortin and that supplies would have been transported to Europe with efficiency and limited bureaucracy. Crete's thriving agricultural and fishing industries would aid the Romans and highlight the importance of Crete's role in the Mediterranean economical network. Due to the amount of generations that came and went during the Roman period of rule, a type of Romano-Cretan culture would emerge rather organically as opposed to forcibly. Christian culture may have migrated to Crete through the existing Jewish culture there during the 1st century, but there is little evidence of the specific details of how influential Christianity was over the population during the earliest years of its arrival. The Cretan connection to Cyrenaica was severed by the Emperor Diocletian in the late 3rd century after he looked to split the central governance of the Roman Empire into two halves, 
and this would eventually connect Crete to the Eastern Roman Empire and lead to the period which historians refer to as Byzantine Crete, where the island was governed by the Byzantine Empire, a natural continuation of Roman rule. Christian culture among the quarter of a million Cretans now dominated the island as the Roman Empire became a Christian empire. The Roman Empire had split into two and as we mentioned Eastern Romans became the Byzantines while the Western Romans disintegrated during the 5th century thanks to the incursions of Germanic tribes into their territories. One of those tribes were the Vandals who migrated through Iberia before taking control of a territory in North Africa stretching from the modern day countries of Morocco across to Tunisia. Successful Vandal invasions of the Mediterranean islands included the Balearics, Corsica, Sardinia and Sicily. The Vandals did attempt to invade Crete also in the year 457, but they did not occupy it. Crete really became less significant in international politics during this period due to its relative safety as a part of the Byzantine Empire and its location meaning that it was not in a primary place for the aggressions of the Byzantines' most powerful enemies. So the island was able to exist quite peacefully and fruitfully until the rise of the Arabs in the 7th century threatened the peacefulness of the Aegean once again. The Cretans generally attempted to resist the iconoclastic form of Christianity promoted by monarchs of the Byzantine Isaurian dynasty during the 8th century, but were punished for their stance and forced to adhere to iconoclastic practices. Iconoclasm threatened to fracture Catholic Christianity in Europe as the cities of Rome and Constantinople battled to be regarded as the primary city of global Christianity, with the Isarians in Constantinople attempting to class icon worship as improper, with icons representing any kind of effigy or image of a high-standing individual within Christianity. Throughout this period, the Arabs, whose religion was Islam, conducted raids on the island until the 9th century when they actually conquered it. It is important to note that the conquest was not made from the Muslims of the Middle East, but rather those who had been exiled from Al-Andalus, the Muslim state on the Iberian Peninsula. Islam had spread so far and wide by the 9th century that different Muslim nation states and dynasties were now controlling different territories and often in opposition to each other. It may have been that the Al-Andalus Muslims who landed on Crete initially attempted to settle in Alexandria before being expelled by the pro-Abbasid Muslims who controlled the city at the time. Whether or not the Al-Andalus exiles intended to conquer Crete is debatable with some suggesting that it was only originally intended to be a standard Cretan raid. By the time the Byzantines accepted that they would need to act to deal with the Muslim invasion, the island had already been taken. Upon securing Crete, the new emirate would be quick to recognise the suzerainty of the Abbasids in order to cement their position. 
Crete acted as a natural buffer to the entrance into the Aegean Sea and the route to Constantinople itself. Before the Arab conquest, many raids were conducted on Crete. Now they were conducted from Crete and so the island became a hub of piracy. The Byzantines were somewhat powerless to prioritise the issue of Crete due to the pressures that they faced from the Bulgars and the Kievan Rus taking priority. Considerable tensions existed between the Byzantines and the Muslim Cretans, which escalated into conflict periodically throughout the remainder of the 9th and the early 10th century. It would come down to the legendary Byzantine military commander Nikephorus Phokas to reconquer the island as he would make a considerable impact against Muslim occupation of Cilicia, Cyprus and Crete by taking all of these lands back and symbolising a resurgence of Byzantine power. So Crete was now once again under Byzantine rule. Beyond this period of Byzantine history and we enter into the Age of the Crusades which was instigated by the rise of the Turks in the Middle East and their incursions into the Anatolian territories of the Byzantines. The Turks brought Islam to Anatolia and looked to replace the Byzantine Christian churches which prompted Rome to take the opportunity to come to the rescue of the Byzantines and attempt to score a win for Christianity against Islam by reclaiming lost Christian churches and by reclaiming the holy city of Jerusalem. This would also help Rome demonstrate its superiority over Constantinople as the capital city of the Christian world. Rome would encourage the nations of Western Europe to join the Crusades for the glory of Christianity and in order to enjoy the spoils of conquest by plundering the wealth of the conquered territories. This would attract the interest of those nations who would make their fortune from maritime trade opportunities such as the Venetians and the Genoese. The island of Crete was in the centre of the maritime route from west to east. The gradual weakening of the Byzantine Empire, thanks in large part to the power of the Turks, meant that the Byzantines had to frequently negotiate its way out of sticky situations during its later centuries. This became more apparent than ever during the Fourth Crusade. Venetians pledged to support the Crusade, but due to a lack of promised funding from Constantinople and a dynastic dispute over the rulership of the Byzantine Empire, the Venetians were able to gather enough support to justify an invasion of Constantinople, ultimately deposing all of the Byzantine dynasties and creating a Western Christian state called the Latin Empire. The Venetians were able to acquire the territories of Crete in the aftermath of the fall of the Byzantines and they would establish the kingdom of Candia there. The trading rivals of the Venetians were the Genoese and they would attempt to prevent the Venetians' establishment of the kingdom of Candia but it was in vain. By the year 1212 the Venetians had succeeded in their goal. The Kingdom of Candia It is important to note that the Byzantines were not extinguished by the events of the Fourth Crusade. 
but were actually just exiled from the city of Constantinople, with the population of Crete being established as from the Orthodox Greek-speaking Christian churches of the Eastern Mediterranean. There would be tensions between the population and their Roman Catholic rulers from Venice. The earliest decades of the Kingdom of Candia saw a number of revolts. Even when the Byzantines managed to regain Constantinople later in the 13th century, there was still not enough wealth available to the Cretans to be able to overthrow Venetian rule. Despite there being constant tensions between Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic Venetians within the Kingdom of Candia, as generations passed, the island's population would evolve to become a hybrid of the two cultures and their common Christian identities would be brought closer together by the rise of the Ottomans in Anatolia. When the Ottomans suffocated and eventually eliminated the Byzantine Empire, what little financial support given to the Greek Orthodox resistance to the Venetians in Crete was now completely gone. And in the face of Ottoman expansion, the Greek Orthodox Cretans had to learn to embrace their Venetian rulers. After the acceptance of the situation brought the amount of rebellions among the population down, the focus had to be on the re-strengthening of the Kingdom of Candia. The island had an ability to produce wine of a very high quality and it was highly sought after by the nobilities of the nations of Europe, creating a thriving industry but it was often Venice who would be the primary beneficiaries of this opportunity. However, the Venetians would also be the reason why the wine trade worked so well, due to their expertise in transporting the produce and their trusted relationship with fellow Roman Catholic nations. As a result of this doorway into the Roman Catholic world, the Cretans would be exposed to the cultural renaissance, of Western Europe. The Kingdom of Candia would become a haven for the fusion of Greek and Latin artwork that existed on Crete that extended to literature, architecture and music. During this period of development of the Kingdom of Candia on the island of Crete, the Ottomans were gathering more and more power and dominating all the lands around the Aegean Sea, which represented the doorway to the lucrative Black Sea. The Ottomans took the island of Cyprus from the Venetians at the end of the 16th century, but the Venetians maintained control of Crete. The Ottomans would not turn their attention towards Crete until the middle of the 17th century, possibly knowing that they would experience fierce resistance from the Christian states of Western Europe. The general weakening of the Venetian nation due to the diminishing significance of Mediterranean trade in the light of new global trade routes being created meant that the Ottomans started seeing Crete as a genuine target for expansion and so they invaded. The Ottomans may not have expected such resistance and the Venetian naval capabilities hugely hindered Ottoman ambitions in a war where supply by naval means was absolutely key to the outcome. So the Ottomans could not finish the job, but were still committed to the plan. This resulted 
in a protracted war over the island that would last for almost 25 years. But the financial implications eventually exposed the Venetians who could not sustain the defence of the island, and the Ottomans prevailed, thus ending the Kingdom of Candia and bringing Crete under Ottoman rule alongside the rest of the already conquered Greek-speaking lands of the Aegean. The Ottomans Ottoman rule over Crete was tense. The Ottomans would impose taxes over the Cretans and the Christian population tried to oppose their new rulers. The Christian forces of the Holy League, in this particular case set up to prevent Ottoman expansion, would attempt to support the Cretan population and Venetian attempts to reclaim the island, but it was ultimately in vain. Generally, the Ottomans would create a janissary class from the conquered enemies, in which young males were captured, converted to Islam and intensely trained to become part of an elite military class whose purpose would be to protect the interests of the Sultan and the Empire. Those who successfully made it into the janissary ranks would be granted a comfortable life from a financial perspective. So much so that some poorer families would actually attempt to infiltrate the system, believing that they would have a more comfortable life as a janissary than in poverty. The population was subject to Islamization, and forced conversions took place so that significant levels of the population were Muslims quite quickly, and this meant that a special relationship developed between the Cretans and the Cretan janissaries, where the Cretans saw the Janissaries as their protectors, and the Janissaries felt valued by their effective subjects. The Cretan Janissaries saw themselves as a valuable part of the protection of the Ottoman Empire would actually start making demands of their ruling class, even threatening revolt if their demands were not met. The Ottomans realised that public conversion to Islam strengthened their grip on new territories. But there was never much value in expending the energy to completely eliminate the local religion, so the Greek Orthodox Christian Church continued to exist alongside the Muslim converts. The relationship was not harmonious though, and Christians could be subject to harsh repercussions if they dared to antagonise the Muslim Janissaries with their religious practices. Generally, the Janissaries were encouraged by the Sultan not to act with aggression towards Christians. The Venetians were no longer able to monopolise the grain production of the island, with there now being more surplus grain for the Cretan population. Wine production declined in favour of olive farming, but Venetian traders were still close to the Cretans despite their loss of control of the island so trade with Western European nations was still significant. The population of Crete had declined significantly due to the side effects of the protracted war on the island between the Venetians and the Ottomans during the 17th century, so the remaining population were generally able to acquire land with more ease, so the way of life for the average person likely improved. It is likely that a large proportion of the population resented Ottoman rule in general and likely believed that they would do just fine operating in independence. 
and there was definitely a revolutionary feeling in the Balkans among the Greek populations which would have felt interesting to the Greek cultured Cretans. The Greeks on the mainland revolted significantly against Ottoman rule in 1821 and the Cretans were swept up in the fever of the event. 19th century Christian superpowers such as France, Great Britain and Russia actively encouraged the anti-Ottoman movement, creating a belief among the Greeks that they could remove the shackles of Ottoman rule. Balkan Greeks actively encouraged Cretan Greeks to revolt. The Cretans watched their Balkan neighbours succeed in overthrowing Ottoman rule and with the support of the Christian nations of Europe, a Greek kingdom was established. The Cretans remained under Ottoman rule, but there was a real sense of an ability to follow their Greek cousins and claim independence for Crete. And this sentiment dominated the island throughout the 19th century with regular revolts against Ottoman rule. By now, the Christian superpowers were now highly influential over the politics of the area and they had declared that the Egyptians should oversee Cretan politics to prevent tensions and encourage a peaceful period following the Greek uprisings. But this solution proved to be short term, with control being allowed back to the Ottomans in what was proving to be a political game of chess in the eastern Mediterranean, with many nations having an interest in the region. The Cretans wouldn't care too much for the international chessboard though and would have had their own agenda which would result in greater revolts against Ottoman rule, each of which was put down by the Ottomans. The ultimate result of these revolts was at the end of the 19th century when it was clear that the Cretans would not tolerate Ottoman rule despite the international feeling that peace on Crete was hoped for but was now unrealistic, especially with Greece actively supporting the Cretans. Eventually, the Cretans finally had their autonomy recognised, and even though it was still politically affiliated with the Ottomans, it was now a self-governing state. The reality was that Crete was still continuing to be manipulated by foreign powers, and it was being steered from Ottoman-Turkish influence into national Greek influence. Austria-Hungary, France, Germany, Italy, Russia and the United Kingdom sent a naval task force called the International Squadron to oversee Ottoman withdrawal from the island. The first High Commissioner was Prince George of Greece and Denmark, son of King George I of Greece. It would not take long for politicians in Crete to actively seek a union with the Kingdom of Greece and so it was internationally recognised that this had happened by the year 1913. Greek Crete The First World War had politically crippled the Ottoman Empire and it would be replaced by a republican movement who established a Republic of Turkey in the Anatolian remnants of the empire. A man who had been highly influential in Greek politics during this period was Eleftherios Venizelos, and he had played an important role in the independence of Crete 
and its subsequent union with Greece. Venizelos supported the idea of a population exchange between Greece and Turkey, and so it took place in 1923 that many Orthodox Greeks from Anatolia were forcibly relocated in Greece, and in Crete, many Cretan Turks were forcibly relocated to Turkey. The motivation for the relocation was to prevent massacres that had been taking place within the remains of the Ottoman Empire against other ethnic groups, including Ottoman Greeks. So Ottoman Greeks were relocated to Greek lands, including Crete, where they replaced Cretan Turks. Many Ottoman Greeks felt a great sense of melancholia after their relocation, pining for their Anatolian homelands. And the same can be said for the Cretan Turks relocated to Anatolia, taken away from their beloved island of Crete. During the Second World War, the island of Crete was very important in terms of its strategic location in the Mediterranean Sea, guarding the naval route to the eastern Mediterranean and the Suez Canal. Italy targeted Greece in order to demand its submission, and following Greek refusal, the Italians attempted an invasion which culminated in German intervention due to the stern Greek resistance. The Greek king and government fled to the island of Crete, while mainland Greece fell to Germany and its allies. Crete would enjoy better protection from Germany by the Allied navy. Germany was keen to win the island of Crete, but knew that the only way to win the island would be to conduct a significant airdrop of paratroopers, an operation the likes of which had never been attempted before. The Cretan population, proud of their heritage as an island nation, would not wait for Allied protection from the German paratroopers. They would organise a Cretan resistance and would rise up to defend their island, fighting paratroopers with anything that they could lay their hands on. Despite the brave resistance of the Cretan population and the fact that they had made significant impact on the invaded paratroopers, after 13 days of fighting, the Allied powers lost Crete to Germany in the Axis powers. Massacres of Cretans took place in the aftermath of the defeat as a reprisal of their refusal to submit to the Germans during the battle, named the Battle of Crete. The liberation of Greece and Crete came during the closing months of the Second World War. During this time, the Greek population had suffered hugely with no support from their exiled government in Egypt. In the void created by this lack of governance, communist movements developed within Greece itself that would oppose the old Greek regime. This underlying political fracture had existed within Greece for much of the 20th century, but it was no more important now that the country was on its knees and attempting to rebuild itself. Many of the bitter sentiments that existed between the communists and the royalists within Greece were not as bitter on the island of Crete and the civil war that had emerged in Greece following the disaster of the Second World War was not wholly encouraged within Crete with anything like the same levels of passion. If anything, the Greek civil war spilt over into Crete with small pockets of rebels remaining on the island 
right up until the 1970s. Modern Crete is an island of proud Cretans who generally favour being a part of the Greek nation. But see their role in Greece as a worthy and sensible part of Greece, a country that has often been its own worst enemy with its political differences. That's not to say that the political differences have not existed in Crete, but the Cretans have been able to overcome those differences with greater ease than their mainland Greek brothers and sisters. The modern island of Crete has become a popular tourist destination due to the attractive Mediterranean climate, the incredible ancient history of the Minoans, which is highlighted so vividly at the ruined temple at Knossos, and the unique Cretan culture of the island. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Cretans and the history of the island of Crete. Well, what a long episode that was, but it was essential because of such of the richness of history uh, on that island and over so many periods of time. So we really had to work hard to squeeze it all into one episode, but we did it. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Now let's move on to other stuff. The Ancient World Cup. So we're back in full swing with the Ancient World Cup and uh, as most of you will be aware now, it's a tournament where we've taken 64 teams uh, from the ancient world and the classical world. We've jumbled them all up into groups and we've narrowed it down to the last 32. We're now in the stages of turning that 32 into 16 by way of a knockout uh, round where... Each of the 32 teams will be drawn against each other in one-on-one competition. Uh, Eight of the matches have been decided and this last week was the ninth match between the Romans and the Cushites uh, to find out who would go through to the next round of the competition. Uh, Now, voting took place all week on the History of the World podcast uh, Facebook page. The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages Facebook page, the History of the World podcast unofficial fan group and uh, the Tapper Talk discussion forum and on the Twitter feed for the History of the World podcast. All the votes were rounded up. There were 54 votes in total and uh, I am pleased to announce that going through to the next round with 83% of the votes this week are the Romans. So it was a resounding victory for the Romans against the Kushites. We say goodbye to the Kushites and uh, the Romans will progress to the next round, where they will face one of the teams who will be playing each other this coming week. So you'll get your uh, you'll get your voting opportunities again this week uh, for the tenth uh, match. Who will play against the Romans in the next round? It will be one of these two teams, either the Minoans or the Huns. Uh, quite interesting, really, the fact that the Minoans were playing each other. Uh, or the, the Minoans were playing uh, on this week uh, where we were talking about the history of Crete. So just by pure coincidence has come up. So we know a bit about the Romans because we've already spoken about them, that Cretan society who were also known as the first uh, true society of Europe 
and uh, they'll be playing against the mighty Huns, who will um, who were are the, well, they invaded Europe uh, substantially um, a long time after the Minoans were even in existence. So we've really got a difference of ages here. The Huns, of course, came from the steppe. They were steppe culture uh, peoples who came in off the grasslands of Eurasia and invaded Europe and uh, really caused a big headache for both the Eastern and the Western Roman Empire, um, such the likes that we haven't seen anyone do before. So uh, a really fascinating contest between the Minoans and the Huns. Voting will begin for that one tomorrow. Listener messages and reviews. Now, of course, this week's episode was a special episode uh, commissioned for Pre Carpenter, History of the World podcast Illuminati member. And um, Pre got the pleasure of uh, requesting that episode thanks to uh, being a contributor towards the podcast and accumulating the necessary amount to commission an episode of their choice. Um, last week, we spoke about the Khoisan people, which, which also was... Uh, a commissioned episode thanks to a History of the World podcast member, and it was uh, Nick Kabilafkas who wrote in and said, uh, Dear Chris, thank you very much for your excellent, well-researched episode on the queer and sand people, which I've just finished covering the sweep of history from the beginning of modern humanity to the modern day. As I heard, their story has a lot in common with that of Australian uh, Aborigines, uh, including the tragic parts, but I'm very clear... Um, I'm very glad to hear that there are indigenous folk determined to blaze a new future for their people, even as it is based on the very ancient past. I'm in awe of your work ethic and ability to consistently produce such uh, erudite material covering the whole sweep of history in an, uh, in an accessible and entertaining way. I hope that you are able to keep it up with all your other commitments and recommend your podcast to anyone who wishes to learn more of how we came to be. Cheers from Sydney, Australia. P.S. Can't wait for the next episode on Crete. One branch of my family hailed from that island and I grew up on tales of the resistance to the Germans in World War II. Only recently... Um, or I also only recently learned the incredible Byzantine and Arab history of the island. Uh, like a lot of people, I grew up learning a lot about Egypt, Greece and Rome and then skipping to the early modern period without knowing much about what happened in between apart from some of the English monarchs. Your period on medieval history is teaching me a lot I never knew. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, and I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, you enjoyed that episode and thank you, that is your reward for um your commitment to the to the success of the podcast so thank you very much and you're most welcome um paul from melbourne uh wrote in um i think your name might be paul hill if i if i'm going by your email address um uh, as you put, hi Chris, I joined Spotify a couple of months ago and after a few weeks I was fortunate enough to discover the History of the World series of podcasts. I'm playing catch up at the moment. I've just finished volume one, episode two, Hunter Gatherers. These first 12 episodes have been completely fascinating to me as I'm particularly interested in the evolution of man since our common ancestor with the chimpanzee. I'll try and um, condense your email down 
uh, Paul, just because you, you did you did quite right. Uh, you did write quite a lot, so I, I just want to condense it down for the sake of uh, this broadcast. Um, you've put a subject that has come up during episode twelve, as well as some of your previous podcasts on the evolution of man, is the subject of interactions between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. You have previously pointed out that you do not believe any form of systematic slaughter took place, but rather the demise of the Neanderthal was down to competition and assimilation. I tend to agree with your hypothesis, as usual, but there is a further question I would like to pose. Are we even sure that archaic Homo sapiens would have been cognizant with uh, that Neanderthals were a different species? Um, Interesting. I mean, I think if we, we have to say that the Cro-Magnon Homo sapiens are essentially the same species as us. So for us to believe that they wouldn't have seen the difference between them and the Neanderthals would maybe be potentially a little bit um, naive, perhaps. So we have to think of these people as having very similar uh, cognitive abilities to us, I believe. Um, Another point I would like to make, this is going back to Paul's email, um, is regarding these migrations of early species of man across land bridges and out of Africa, etc. It is my belief that these tribes would have had no idea they were migrating anywhere. I suspect that the gradual spread and then retraction of certain species to and fro over land bridges and between continents would have taken place cons- constantly over countless millennia. Each generation would have spread a little further in search of resources and or to avoid hostile competition. I don't believe that they wistfully surveyed the horizon before packing their belongings Dick Whittington style and setting off one day to find new lands. I believe that the migrations were much more organic affair, covering maybe 50 or 100 miles per generation, purely based on natural spread in all directions that were not barred by physical barriers, rather than a deliberate movement to a new continent. Anyway, Chris, thanks again for your great work and best wishes in your future endeavours. Kind regards, Paul. Um, just to sort of touch on that, really, I, I like to try and give uh, Homo sapiens more credit once again for their cognitive abilities. And, and whilst I do believe that um, they would have discussed with each other uh, the necessity to move to the next piece of fertile land, um, it's not... Um, it's not inconceivable for um, for Homo sapiens to have discussed the dream of moving into a, a completely different area, of like upping and leaving, taking all their belongings, and saying, "Look, life is too hard for us for us here. Why not let's just take our chances." and move into a completely different area of the world, you know. They wouldn't have had the concept of the world as we know it today, but they would have certainly had the concept of a migration um, as we know it today. So, um, yeah, I mean, the argument could go on all day, couldn't it? But nonetheless, a, a fascinating discussion. And thank you very much indeed for the email, Paul. Much appreciated. Moving on. Um... Nathan Cox, who regularly writes in, has put, when are you starting Volume 5? Um, now, don't get me wrong, Volume 4 isn't finished, so if you're cons- if you're thinking that the next set of podcasts will be Volume 5, it's not. We- we're only just sort of partway through Volume 4. We've- we- we're not even halfway through Volume 4, so there's plenty more Volume 4 to come, and it will take us right through 
to the end of the year and um, and it will take up probably all of next year. So volume five, which will be sort of the Renaissance world and the, the, the age of exploration, um, we can expect that in probably 2024. So thank you for writing in, Nathan. Um, moving on, we've got Jamie. Jamie M. Williams, I believe you might be, that might be your full name, judging by your email address, has written in and said, Hi Chris, I'm absolutely loving the, I absolutely love the podcast. Originally got into the podcast while I was taking a humanities course in college. I couldn't read my textbook while working in the warehouse and found your episodes went into many of the civilizations my course was going over. It helped me a lot and I passed that course with a passing grade in large part thanks to the podcast. That's great news, Jamie. Thank you. I've always loved history and this has gotten me reinterested in various areas of the world and their histories. Cannot wait for more episodes in the Americas since I'm from Oklahoma in the US. We've got a large and complicated presence of our native population. Oklahoma schools do not adequately teach the history of our native tribes and I would love to see more representation of these diverse people groups often overlooked by most. Love the podcast and everything you've been doing. The the episodes make my work day go by so much better and someday when I'm not a broke college student, I'll be donating to the funds to keep this podcast going. So glad Spotify now lets people give a rating so I could finally put something down to promote this. Thanks for making the beautiful podcast. Jamie, well, thank you very much for expressing your very positive opinions, Jamie. It's always highly appreciated. And many, many congratulations for passing um, your course. And uh, I'm so glad that my podcast may have helped you to do that but of course your your passion and enthusiasm would have been the the real driving force that would have enabled you to achieve that i think um also probably coincidentally we've got another special episode uh coming up next week and this time it will be for the history of the world podcast illuminati member ian van alphen who has asked for a special episode about the colony of New Netherland. And if you don't know anything about that, generally speaking, uh, that is the area of um, of the United States of America that uh, fundamentally contains the, the cities of New York and uh, Philadelphia. Um, all of that was initially colonised by the Dutch Republic uh, back in the 17th century before the uh, the English came along and, and pretty much took over that, that whole area. So we'll be talking about that that period of history, um, the birth of the city of New York, essentially, and, um, and the colony uh, surrounding it called New Netherlands. So we'll be touching on American history and briefly talking about some of the um, some of the natives that the Dutch encountered when they first colonized that region so uh some a bit a bit of american history there for you to look forward to bill g bassa has written in and put hello chris amazing everything about it it's long due for me to write to you and tell you how much i appreciate your work just sheer volume of the task itself you take on is unbelievable you do a great job of it five star all the way i'm listening from mongolia i don't know if you want to add that to the uh to your listeners uh, country origins I'll, I'll be very i'll be very pleased to such a great rich history mongolia has and, and very influential on 
on the world around it, especially Chinese history. One thing I'd like to mention, which is very important for historians like you, when you come to Mongolian history, specifically Chinggis Khan's uh, history, please refer to him as Chinggis Khan and not Genghis Khan. We Mongolians would like to correct this common mistake in history. Um, I've heard stories regarding why his name has misspelled in Western world and how badly demonised his conquest around Europe, but that I leave it to your expert, well-capable opinion so you can help spread real history to your listeners. I can't wait for you to come to Mongol Conquests. Thank you, Bilgi Bassa. Well, um, firstly, I hope I've pronounced your name correctly. Secondly, um, I hope I've pronounced Chinggis... Well, it's Chinggis Khan, isn't it? Khan, you, the, the K is somewhat silent in that Turkic tongue, which the, the name that we anglicise as Khan comes from, that is a very common surname in uh in certainly in um um in some of those uh, areas where turkic languages has migrated into um and uh yeah chingis uh, where it's sort of it's it's almost like the same as genghis but actually just changing the g's from hard g's to soft g's so you're actually saying gengis so it's like it must just be the way that the name has migrated. Sometimes we see this. There's a lot of anglicised names. We only have to look at Julius Caesar to see that how how anglicised that is. I mean, there's absolutely no way that Julius Caesar would have been referred to as Julius Caesar. And we've said it before in the podcast. It, it's highly likely that it was more like Julius Caesar. Um, and so the change is, is very radical. And so it happens pretty much to everything that it gets anglicised. And, and it's a quite a, it's quite a quiz for me whether it's going to be, whether it's prudent to stay with the anglicised version or whether it's better for me to attempt to, um, I don't know, revise the, the natural pronunciation. I like to be respectful to the native tongue, so I'm more likely to call Genghis Khan, Chinggis Khan, um, just more out of respect for that uh, for that change. I certainly know that Marie Favreau in her book has made a concerted effort to refer to him as Chinggis in, in texts, and um, and she's very much studied the, the Mongol hordes, um, you know, in great detail, written a book about it. I had the pleasure of um, sitting in on a lecture of hers around about two months ago and uh, and learning a little bit more about Mongol uh, migration. So looking forward to that set of episodes and thank you very much for writing in, Bilgy. Now, if you want to commission your own special episode of the History of the World podcast, um, just simply sign up to become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati uh, by going to the History of the World podcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link and signing up to make a monthly contribution. And, and over time, you may accumulate the correct amount in order for me to send you an email just saying, thank you very much, you've now qualified to commission your own special episode. And um, one of the uh, newest members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati is is a gentleman called Paul Byrne. So we thank you, Paul, for your contribution, a very generous contribution as well, Paul. So thank you very much. I will try and spend your money wisely. And uh, thank you for your support. So um, do please consider signing up, making a monthly contribution and, and making it easier for me to produce this uh, this incredible uh, piece of work that we're trying to achieve here. So um, do consider that. 
And uh, moving on to the History of the World podcast um, reviews, let's have a look and see whether any whether we've got any new reviews this week. And uh, no, we haven't. That's it. Well, that's quite good because this episode's been rumbling on for, for quite some time, so it would be quite a sensible idea for us to wrap things up anyway. And thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you for all your contributions, and I hope you did enjoy this special episode. Next week, we'll be looking at the colony of New Netherland. Um, so, yeah, really uh, fun journey that will be, jumping right forward to the 17th century and uh, and finding out exactly what happened there and uh, why New York is now New York. So, uh, until next week, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.